Morning, Christ Church. Today's reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 21, verses 25 to 36. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth nations will be in an anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be grateful, oh sorry, be careful of your hearts and be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will continue on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as has already been said, today is Advent Sunday, the start of Advent in church, if maybe not in your Advent calendar quite. Um, and, and this year during Advent, we're going to be exploring together the Bible readings that the Church of England sets for Advent, um, has set for each of the Sundays in the run-up to Christmas, beginning today with that passage from Luke 21. And if I've learnt one thing from this Bible passage this week, it's this. Always double-check the preaching rotor to make sure that you don't have to preach on a passage like Luke 21. <laughs> what a Bible reading. It's not an easy one, is it? Um, I'm not even going to try and take us through the whole thing, but hopefully we can at least start to scratch the surface. But before we dive in, let me ask you a question which may or may not seem like it's related at the moment. How do you spend your Advent? What do you do? What are the words you'd use to describe Advent in your life? I suspect if you asked my kids, they would say something about, we eat lots of chocolate. I suspect if you asked Mike, that's probably what he'd say as well. Is that right? Yes, that's what he'd say as well. Um, I suspect they also might say something along the lines of, ah, oh, yes, Advent. That's when mum disappears into church for four weeks and then reappears for Christmas dinner looking bedraggled. It's a time for putting up Christmas decorations, for drinking mulled wine, for work parties and school nativities. Um, it's for Christmas markets and present wrapping and card writing and all those other things that I love. And all of that in anticipation of the big day on December the 25th. And in the Christian church, Advent is a time of preparation and anticipation too. Anticipation and excitement as we get ready to celebrate and to remember again that God so loved the world that he sent his son for us. The word advent comes from the Latin adventus, which means coming or coming towards. It's a time for us to wait and reflect on the Christ child, on the coming of that very precious gift from God in Bethlehem. 
It's a time for us to prepare our hearts and minds to receive that gift afresh and to get ready for when he'll return again. And then we read this in Luke 21. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will shake. Christmassy, hey? Nothing says the festive season like environmental disaster and political upheaval and earthquakes and floods and famine and goodness knows what else. But actually, this is the world we live in, isn't it? A world which, whilst we're decorating Christmas trees and making mince pies, is being scarred daily by injustice and violence. A world where famine and drought and floods and fires and freezing temperatures are increasingly everyday occurrences. A world where people live in fear, and not just of natural disaster, but what other people will do to them. A world where people die just trying to get to a safe place to live. A world where people are pitted against each other based on the colour of their skin or their political persuasion or their nationality or their gender or their, or their religion or whatever else it might be. A world where the rich leave the poor to fend for themselves and where the whole world goes to waste. And if you think she's exaggerating for effect because of the Bible passage this morning, here's a few headlines just from the last 10 days. And you look at all of that, don't you? And you just have to wonder, where is God? And friends and colleagues and family ask us, how can you believe in God and a good God when the world is the way it is? It's a sort of question that celebrity atheists like to ask, isn't it, as well? Um, Richard Dawkins or Stephen Fry, Ricky Gervais. Where is this God of love you Christians are always banging on about in a world which suffers in anguish like this? I wonder how you respond to all these things that are going, in the going on in the world. We're all different, aren't we? We all have different temperaments, different persuasions. Some of us are glass half empty, some of us are glass half full, some of us are, my glass is always empty, or I'm just grateful to have a glass, or whatever the other options are. But I suspect, on the whole, we often fall into one of two camps. Either distraction or despair. We often try to distract ourselves from the real situation of the world by having fun, by, what was it saying in our reading, uh, dissipation and drunkenness. Or maybe we disengage in a less noticeable way. We flick through the headlines, but we don't read the news article because it's a bit too painful, a bit too uncomfortable. Or we busy ourselves with projects and jobs and bank statements. We buy a bamboo toothbrush to alleviate our environmental gift or text a tenor to UNICEF whilst we sit on the sofa eating our tea. Anything at all, if it just distracts us long enough to keep us from seeing how things really are. Jesus knew that we did that and he addressed some of it in verse 34. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. Be careful, Jesus says. 
Or in other words, take care. Why? Well, because the things you think will help you by capturing your attention and making you think happy thoughts in the face of the world's anguish are actually lies. Don't worry about climate change, just buy that thing anyway. Or forget poverty and homeless, you need a holiday. Or, yes, life is hard for people and sad, but let's go to church and see our friends and try and distract ourselves from it all and forget all about it whilst we sing some nice songs together. And eventually the distraction technique becomes a burden. Because once you start, you have to work doubly hard to find new things to capture our gaze, just to keep the difficult bits out, constantly whirling and whizzing to try and keep the charade going. Instead of distraction, Jesus says, look, watch, pay attention, take care. Look around at everything that's going on and look for God. It says this, Jesus says this, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Don't take solace in partying or drunkenness or anything else for that matter. Don't be weighed down by the anxieties of life. Take solace in me. Now you might well be thinking, and I'm partly thinking this, but if I didn't distract myself, I'd plummet into despair at the state of things. Distraction is helpful. And yes, do you know what? Sometimes and in some situations, maybe it is. If we look at everything that's going on in the world, all of those headlines that we saw before, we lament and we mourn and we weep. And that is the right Christian response. But then it can be easy, can't it, just to slip into a pit of despair. Perhaps feeling powerless to change the way things are in the world. Perhaps unable even to imagine anything other than the way things are. Unable to envision a future where things might be different or better. Perhaps even unable to imagine that God could be anywhere at all in all of this mess. Well, Jesus doesn't just say, take solace in me. In verse 28, he says a very strange thing. He says, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, for your redemption is drawing near. Lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This isn't just a chin-up or a cheer-up, love, it might never happen, which is never a helpful thing to have said to anyone, just in case you're wondering. I believe what Jesus meant was something more like this. Stand up and lift up your heads, like a dog lifting their nose in the air to sniff for for the familiar scent of their master. Because even in the midst of this chaos and confusion, this distress and despair, perhaps especially in the chaos and confusion and the distress and despair of the world. The master, our God, is near. God is at work. Jesus somehow working his purposes out. And that might sound a bit bonkers, but remember that when Jesus first said these words, he was saying them to his disciples just a short time before he was arrested and put to death. And I guess it probably didn't feel like God was very present there either, either to the disciples or to Jesus. Remember his words on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus sharing in the world's anguish. But over and over again, we find in the Bible, don't we, that God turns up in the mess. We see it in the stories of Noah, of Abraham, of Joseph. We see it when the Israelites escape from Egypt, when Gideon slays off the Midianites, when David faces off Goliath. We see it when the saviour of the world is born in someone else's back room. We see it when Jesus heals the sick and the lame and comforts the bereaved and eats dinner with the outcasts. We see it when Jesus appears to his distraught followers, no longer dead, but alive. There is no denying that the world is in a desperate state. And there should be no denying that as Christians, as all people, as stewards of God's creation, God calls upon us to care and to take care of all that he has made. The plants and the people and all the other things in between. And there's no denying as well that Christians aren't very good at that. Even now, a lot of the time, when we should know better. But Jesus also called on his first disciples, and he calls on us not to slip into despair, but to try to lift our noses in the air and to sniff out where he might be at work. You see, so often God is found among the broken and the suffering. He's drawn to the cries of the people. God is a rescuer a saviour, a friend to those in need. But if I'm right about this passage, then how do we recognise the master's scent? How do we come to see things from God's perspective? How do we work out the way that God is at work? We know from Isaiah 55 that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. So this all sounds pretty complex and pretty hard work actually. But I wonder if maybe, just perhaps, it's more straightforward than we might think. Maybe it's just the same as the way that you get to know anybody else. You spend time with them. You learn about them. You put everything to one side for a while and focus solely and completely on them. Give them your undivided attention. You learn about their story, where they've come from, what makes them tick. I wonder if in this instance it's as simple as picking up this book every day, spending time in prayer every day, spending time with people who also spend time with Jesus, that we might get to know him a little bit through them as well. So perhaps we should kick off Advent today by challenging ourselves over the next few weeks to strip away some of the distractions. The distractions that crop up every day, the distractions that we use to try and take away a little bit of the difficulty of looking at the world around us. And perhaps especially the distractions that bombard us in the run-up to Christmas. Let's challenge ourselves not to shy away from all that's going on in the world around us, right across the globe. And maybe that begins with stripping away the things of the world which we try to take comfort in but which ultimately are distractions. Not so that we end up in a state of despair, but so that we might stop for long enough to get to know the master and to spot where he's at work, even among, amongst all the mess.
so the worship team are going to come back and lead us. It might be that something of what Anna said is just starting to niggle away at you, and that's good. It's usually a sign the Holy Spirit is getting under our skin. Might be some business to do with God this morning. So a couple of things to be thinking about as we sing and as we mull over what's been said to us from Luke. What are the things you distract yourself with? What are the things maybe God wants to strip away so that we can fix our eyes on him? Maybe Advent is a good time to recommit yourself today uh, to those daily, those daily times with God of getting to know him more, growing closer to him, so you can sniff him out when he seems to be absent. Or maybe it's just a chance to offer some of those burdens you carry, those anxieties and fears and worries you have for the world, for your family, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your communities, to turn those into prayer and offer them to God. So which plays and we sing, um, use this time to do some business with the Holy Spirit this morning. Come Holy Spirit, we pray, and help us to pray. <laughs>